Welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Immigration and the Border, with City Bar Senior Policy Counsel Maria Salenti speaking with Jen Kim, co-director of the Immigrant Justice Project at the City Bar Justice Center, and Caitlin Minor-Legrand, the City Bar Justice Center's Fragman Fellow. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Maria Salenti. There are a number of different ways people from other countries can enter the United States. Today, we're going to focus on a particular subset of immigrants that has received tremendous attention in the news recently, those individuals entering the U.S. through our southern border without authorization, referred to in the press as southern border crossers or migrants or by some as illegal entrants. So thank you, Jen and Caitlin, for coming in today to talk with us about this issue. Let's start with what you know about what's happening on the ground now. Jen, the first question is directed at you. What is happening now when an immigrant attempts to enter the U.S. via the southern border without prior authorization to do so? Thanks, Maria. Well, what sparked the current crisis is that in April 2018, Attorney General Sessions ordered prosecutors along the southern border to adopt a zero-tolerance policy. This meant criminally prosecuting everyone crossing the border unlawfully. Now, under zero-tolerance families crossing the border were separated. So for about six weeks, beginning in May 2018, this became the standard default practice, and at least 2,300 children were separated from their parents as a result. It's important to note that prosecuting people for improper entry into the United States is not new. Uh, Both the Obama and Bush administrations did this, and certainly uh, also detained families. But what was new was the wide-scale separation of families, including asylum seekers. Now, this uh, understandably sparked bipartisan mass outrage. uh, And eventually, in June, the administration issued, or Trump issued an executive order halting the practice of family separation, but seeking instead to keep families together in detention. And It uh, is also seeking to modify the standards governing children in detention, what's called the Flora Settlement, which I think we'll be speaking about later. So many of the border crossers that you read about in the press are um, apparently seeking asylum. Uh, So my first question on on that issue in particular is how, how does one come to the U.S. to claim asylum without either some papers or some authorizations, you know, prior to seeking asylum. So they come up to the border, they want to seek asylum. What happens next? So there are two ways you can seek asylum in the United States. You can apply at a port of entry by presenting yourself to Customs and Border Patrol agents, or you can cross into the United States between ports of entry, what's referred to as improper entry. Once you're caught by a CBP agent, you can request asylum and make a legal claim. But now you've committed a crime, improper entry, to make that asylum claim, and people are are being criminally prosecuted for that. Zero tolerance policy targets people who are coming in the second way. And I think it's also important to note that there is no way to apply for asylum outside of the United States. So really, they are following proper procedure to come to the United States to claim asylum. That's that's interesting. I, I think a lot of people assume that if you're seeking asylum, you could 
go to the embassy in your country and seek asylum there, you know, seek some sort of authorization to um, to come into the United States on the grounds that uh, you're a refugee or, or you have asylum status. But you're saying that um, you have to be in the U.S. to, to seek asylum. Yes. And it's important to note that regardless of where and how you enter, seeking asylum is not a crime. And so the fact that we are seeing significantly increased criminal prosecutions of asylum seekers is hugely problematic under U.S. treaty obligations and international human rights standards. Um, we are not supposed to be penalizing refugees for illegal entry. Um, in fact, in 2015, Department of Homeland Security's own Inspector General's office indicated that doing so might even violate U.S. obligations under the Refugee Convention. What's the penalty for crossing the border um, or illegally entering the country? It's a misdemeanor offense that carries a maximum fine of $250 and up to six months in prison. Illegal reentry is a felony. Now, in practical terms, many who are prosecuted during zero tolerance are sentenced to time served. So in reality, the prosecution of families and asylum seekers was only to effectuate family separation. And what rights do immigrants have once they step on U.S. soil? So what we had made reference to before is that it is legal to come to the United States to request asylum under both international treaty and U.S. law. Um, anyone who comes to the United States without legal status and says they have a fear of persecution in their home country, they have the right to an interview with an asylum officer whether uh, to determine whether or not that fear is credible or not. Once it's deemed credible, they will be passed on to the immigration court system where they can formally seek asylum through a full immigration court hearing. So why doesn't everyone just try to enter the country through an official port of entry? So I think many people do try to enter through an official port of entry. But in practice, recently, uh, Customs and Border Patrol has actually been often turning people away. We've heard reports of uh, them telling people that there's no capacity, come back next week maybe, today we're all full. Um, there's even reports that people are being told that the U.S. government is no longer granting asylum, which obviously functions to discourage people. Uh, you have to imagine that these are people who have traveled long distances often to get to the southern border gone through dangerous situations, and now they're they're kind of right there at the fence. Uh, they're being kept just on the outside. Sometimes makeshift camps have sprung up, um, and people feel maybe that they have no alternative. As a result, sometimes people might head to uh, not a port of entry and try and cross and then be apprehended by Customs and Border Patrol. So what's ironic about that situation is that this administration is touting making an asylum claim at a port of entry as the good way to seek asylum versus the bad way in between ports of entry. But in fact, when people are approaching ports of entry to make asylum claims, they're oftentimes being turned away. In terms of the people who are uh, seeking asylum, let's, let's assume it's, it's through a port of entry. 
Uh, and they're referred to in the press, as we said earlier, as migrants, as asylum seekers, as sometimes wrongfully you know, illegal entrants. Uh, what, what do these terms mean? Like the term you see, the term refugee being used uh, for somebody who's fleeing uh, violence or something in their, in their country or persecution. What, can you explain a little bit what those terms mean? Are they legal terms that have specific definitions uh, so that somebody who's not as familiar with this area of law would, would have an understanding of, of what these terms mean? They're legal terms, and there's a legal process associated with each. Um, so these people coming in and making claims certainly might well be found to be refugees ultimately. But again, that's a legal determination. Um, refugees and asylees are both uh, individuals who are unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin or nationality because of persecution or a well-founded fear of persecution on account of what we refer to as the five protected grounds, race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. Really, the major difference between refugees and asylees is the location of the person at the time they make the application. So refugees are usually outside of the United States when they're screened for resettlement, whereas asylum seekers submit their applications when they're physically in the United States or at a port of entry. When asylum seekers come through the port of entry, I, I want to talk in a little bit more detail about what happens uh, next. You talked about um, assessing whether there is a credible fear that, that they uh, that is keeping them from from wanting to return to their to their home country. Um, can you talk a little bit about what happens when they get here? How are the claims actually handled? So when someone crosses a, the border and they're apprehended or whether they enter through a port of entry and claim asylum, basically Customs and Border Patrol is supposed to ask them whether they have a fear of returning to their home country, as we just mentioned. That, if they say yes, what that sparks is called a credible fear interview. And that is an interview that should take place within 48 hours that is conducted by an asylum officer who's been trained in asylum standards. And they basically assess whether this person has a significant possibility of qualifying for asylum. They're not supposed to actually litigate the asylum claim. Basically, it's designed to be a relatively low standard so that people who would qualify are able to fully flesh out their claims in immigration court. Uh, whether or not in practice it's actually being held to that kind of lower significant possibility standard, it's a little bit more difficult to determine. If you uh, get what's called a positive CFI, if you've established that you do have that significant possibility uh, for qualifying for asylum, you basically remain in detention until um, you could either possibly be offered bond um, and be able to go out, uh, be released into the community and fight your case in immigration court um, on a long-term basis. You might have to actually complete your asylum claim while you're in detention as well. Uh, and there are people who have been held for years uh, while they're trying to present their asylum claims, uh, who are held in detention centers. 
if you don't pass the credible fear screening, uh, you basically have the one shot to ask an immigration judge to affirm or turn over that determination by asylum officer. But if you're out of luck, uh, if you know the immigration judge agrees with the determination by the asylum officer, and the vast majority do, uh, you're subject to what's called expedited removal. And that's something that was introduced in the immigration reform of 1996. And expedited removal basically means that the immigration officer who, you know, you've been found to not present a credible fear, they're acting as both the prosecutor and the judge, and you will be removed physically. You're going to be staying in detention until you're physically removed um, because they've determined you don't uh, present a claim. Uh, there's also, for people who have previously entered the United States, been deported and are now re-entering and want to claim asylum, they're actually held to a higher standard, and that's called a reasonable fear interview. So they have a higher standard to meet in order to be able to claim asylum. On the question of the um, the credible fear or the reasonable fear, you referred earlier, Jen, to the to the five protected grounds. So can you give us some examples of, you know, you, you read in the press about uh people, especially young people, fleeing gang violence, gang recruitment, or perhaps a domestic violence situation. How, how, how does that relate to credible fear based on one of the five protected grounds? Well, this administration clearly would like to foreclose those types of gang claims, gang-based claims, domestic violence-based claims. In fact, in June, Attorney General Sessions um, had unilaterally selected a case and used it to overturn a precedential decision granting asylum on the basis of domestic violence. And again, his intent in that case, matter of AB, uh, is clearly to limit the protections afforded to um, victims of intimate partner violence and other victims of violence by non-state actors. Now, if you analyze the decision, however, you realize that the holding is actually very narrow. Um, and the attorney general makes many sweeping non-legal conclusions, and he also misapplies legal standards. So that case is certainly not going to be the last word, and it's going to be litigated in the federal courts. Um, that case also does not change the requirement of there needing to be a case-by-case -case adjudication, and it doesn't change the established framework for analyzing asylum claims. Um, it's certainly a harder case to make out, especially uh, based on that decision, but it doesn't make those claims not viable. And actually, interim guidance issued by the head of the asylum division for USCIS just a few days after that decision uh, underscores this. Um, the memo makes clear that if there's another ground for asylum or an alternate particular social group formulation that's based on longstanding precedents, even if it is domestic violence or gang-based, or the case can be distinguished based on the evidentiary record, that can absolutely present a viable claim for asylum. So just again for, uh, for our listeners, what are the five protected grounds? It's race, religion, nationality, particular social group, and political opinion. So in, in your experience, where does gender fall in, in terms of the five protected grounds? 
uh, gender typically falls within the particular social group formulation. I see. So in the, uh, Caitlin, you laid out the scenario of what happens when someone comes in and uh, seeking asylum and has within 48 hours has to have the interview and then may or may not get bond and all this. What happens to that individual's uh, children if the, the person who is seeking asylum has brought the ch- uh, child with him or her across the border? So in the case where children are entering with pa- uh, parents or Really, when children are entering with adults, because let's start there, um, oftentimes the adult that children are crossing with may actually not be their biological parent. Uh, They may be a grandparent. They may be an aunt and uncle. Uh, So in that case, if they're not biologically their parent, they will be separated, Um, which can be very traumatic for children who even though it's not their biological parent, this is the person who has been taking care of them their entire life, or at least it's the person whom they know and trust in this situation um, of of tremendous fear and anxiety. Uh, so putting that aside, if they cross with their biological parent right now, post-Trump's uh, executive order, they should probably be detained together. Uh, This was actually happening before Trump and the zero tolerance policy as well. Uh, When parents crossed with their children, especially mothers with their children, they could be detained in family detention centers. And those there are three of those in the United States, two in Texas and one in Pennsylvania. Uh, However, even when they're detained with their mothers, they're still subject to the Flores Settlement Agreement, which I'll discuss a little bit more in detail later. Um, If children are unaccompanied, so this is what happened when children were separated, or there's also been um, quite a few children who come by themselves or in the company of other children, not with an adult caretaker. When they cross the border, they receive a designation called UAC, which stands for Unaccompanied Alien Child. And this designation comes with certain protections because we want to offer protections to people who are in especially vulnerable situations, especially children. So this means that they can't be kept in a secure setting. What we mean by secure means prison, you know, a place where they're locked in and don't have comforts, can't leave. Um, They should be sent. They're kept in the custody of uh, the Office of Refugee uh, Resettlement, ORR. And they're responsible for locating a caretaker here in the United States and getting that child linked up with that caretaker as quickly as possible. Uh, This can sometimes take weeks, um, in rare occasions can take months, and previously there's there's also a concern about who's going to be coming forward to take care, offer themselves up as a a guardian for the child, what is their relationship with that child, which has to be established, but also if that person here in the United States is undocumented, they sometimes have a tremendous amount of fear of identifying themselves to the government in order to take in the child. The individual who is undocumented, who might be fearful of coming forward, Mm -hmm. are they asked to to disclose their status? So this is something that is undergoing evolution at the moment. Um, Previously, uh, there was a little bit more, um, how to exactly put it, it wasn't quite quite as much a cause of concern. They didn't have to be fingerprinted. Now there's uh, a heightened concern. Um, And I also wanted to clarify as well is, 
the children are also required to present asylum claims, even once they uh, are released into a guardian's custody in the United States, they're still placed in removal proceedings. They still have to go to court and present a claim for asylum. So I want to make that clear that that is an ongoing process for them, whether they're with their parents or not. I feel like it's a good time for you to tell us what the Flores settlement is, <laughs> since we've referenced it now a couple times. All right. Uh, so the Flores settlement uh, initially came to be in 1997. And it's specifically about what happens to children uh, when they cross the border and, and what conditions can they be kept in for immigration detention. Um, so there's three basically, well, really two main parts of it. First, that uh, the government should attempt to place the children with a close relative or a family friend as soon as possible, uh, in the exact words, without unnecessary delay rather than keeping them in custody. The second part is that the children who are in custody cannot be kept in a secure and or unlicensed center. So they can't be kept in a jail-like condition. You know, in the United States, we don't jail children with their parents, uh, despite their age or their youth, um, even though that sometimes is the practice in other countries. That's not something that we have set up here uh, in the criminal context, and neither do we allow it to happen in the immigration context. Um, so that was in 1997. And in 2015, uh, during the Obama administration, there was kind of a resurgence in family detention. And this is when mothers and children in particular were crossing the border together, and they were being kept in detention. And advocates brought suit basically saying that this was violating the Flores Settlement Agreement, that even though these children were with their mothers, they were still children and they were still being kept in these secure conditions that violated the agreement. The federal court agreed with them and found that uh, didn't matter. Children in jails is not something we do here and put a 20 day limit on how long children can be kept in a secure setting whether that's with um, or without their parents. And, you know, to wrap it up, now bringing us to the, the current day, in the executive order that President Trump issued, he really just transferred it to family detention. So no longer family separation. Now we're moving back into family detention and specifically called out the Flores Settlement Agreement and asked DOJ to go in and relitigate that to see if, parents and children can be kept in detention indefinitely or for the pendency of their cases. I think Jen referred earlier to the over 2,000 um, children who were separated from their families since April or so when the zero tolerance policy went into full effect. What's happening now with those uh, parents and children who have already been separated? So Jen mentioned 2,300 children uh, is the figure that we're looking at in terms of separated from their parents. And the government does not really have a policy or procedure in place to reunite these children. Uh, there are missing records. Uh, in many cases, the records from when they were initially separated by CBP, those records have disappeared, which has impeded efforts to reunite parents and children. Um, and as a result, you know, to the this lack of process and because there's been such an emotional outpouring in response in both the legal and non-legal community, 
there's been very widespread and large-scale efforts by the pro bono community to focus on reunification. And so there have been hotlines that have been set up where people can call in to um, say, this is who I'm looking for. Can you help put me in contact with this person? Goes through a vetting and screening process. It's kind of a little bit ad hoc. People are figuring it out on the go because there is no process. Um, But there are large-scale pro bono efforts kind of trying to get parents and children reunited. In addition, on the legal side of this, a federal judge has uh, recently ruled, June 26th, I believe, that the the current administration has to, they're legally required to reunite families that have been separated within 30 days, um, sooner if the children are younger than five years old. The first deadline for this is next Tuesday, although the government has already requested uh, an extension on that because they don't believe they'll be able to to complete it in time. So, Jen, in the criminal context, we're familiar with the term alternatives to incarceration, alternatives to detention, ways that um, the system tries to keep people out of detention uh, and bet, but still sort of keep tabs on them in some way, make sure that they come back for court hearings. What are the alternatives to uh, detention and family detention in the immigration context? So this administration uh, is very critical of what's called catch and release, which is the policy that allows some asylum seekers to be released from detention while they're awaiting their hearings in immigration court. Um, This administration favors detaining people even asylum seekers during the pendency of their immigration court hearings, which could last for months or even years. Um, And they are pursuing detaining people even though there are many viable alternatives to detention. For example, being released on recognizance, being paroled, putting up a bond and being released. All of these alternatives have proven to be effective in getting immigrants to show up for their hearings. So what we should be doing and encouraging this administration to do is to pursue really what is a humane and rights-respecting policy that doesn't separate or detain families seeking protection in the United States. And you also have to think about what is the most effective use of resources, time, and taxpayer money. By ICE's own estimate, the bed rate in their facilities costs taxpayers about $133 a day. Uh, So that certainly is something to factor in when you're thinking about the length of immigration court proceedings. You're considering whether these people have already shown that they have a significant possibility of proving their asylum claim and whether they're able to be out in the community building their case uh, might be better both for their case and for the taxpayers. I think one of the questions people have as they read about um, the current situation is what's the difference between someone who entered the United States as a so-called illegal entrant uh, and someone who entered legally but then loses their authorization uh, to, to be here. So they overstay a tourist visa or a work visa or some other um, authorization expires. So now you have two people both in the country without authorization to be here. What, what's the practical difference in terms of the rights of those individuals to, to seek to stay? So 
practically speaking, right, there shouldn't be a tremendous difference. Um, however, the way the current immigration system works allows for someone who entered through a visa, which means that they entered through a port of entry because airports are port of entries. Um, they had an authorized entry and they entered with inspection is what it's called. Um, if you have that, even if you overstay and now you're unauthorized in the United States, you have access to a much wider variety of immigration remedies to adjust your status later. So you can, a lot of people think marriage to a U.S. citizen is the gold standard. That will not necessarily fix uh, someone's immigration status if they entered without inspection, if they entered through the southern border. However, someone who's a visa overstay has a much easier time adjusting their status uh, through family-based petitions, either marriage or, you know, through their children, through their parent, whoever may, it may be. So definitely there are very practical um, and far-reaching implications for how you entered the country. Um, and I think one thing that people often don't realize when we're thinking about uh, the immigration population of the United States is that by some estimates, about half of the undocumented immigration population is made up of visa overstays. Um, so we have this thought process that there are this southern border crisis and everyone's crossing and oh my goodness, the numbers. But in fact, many people, well, a large portion of the undocumented population is visa overstays. That being said, those who overstay their visas, there's usually only about one to three percent are overstays. And that includes people who entered as tourists, people who entered uh, with student visas, work visas. There's a wide variety of ways to enter with a visa. Um, and finally, though, although the system right now allows for um, those who overstay their visas to adjust status in the future, the Trump administration has certainly indicated that they want to harshen uh, penalties for visa overstays. So that's definitely on their uh, horizon as one of their priorities as well. So they issued a new memo, a new policy memo in May, and those changes will go into effect in August. And that basically will mean that uh, someone who overstays their visa, depending on the length of stay, could be subject to a three-year bar uh, for re-entering the United States, 10-year bar in some cases. Uh, so they're definitely seeking uh, to stiffen up the, the penalties for visa overstays as well. Caitlin, where do you see all of this heading? So immigration has always been an issue and by all appearances will remain so. Uh, the State Department itself just issued advisories in January that underscore how grave the humanitarian situation in many Central American countries uh, is. And this is where a large percentage of the people coming to the southern border to claim asylum are coming from, coming from countries that have really been devastated by criminal enterprises, gangs that really exert unbelievable amounts of power, control, authority, violence, and fear over people's day-to-day -day lives. Um, and from what we've seen, that situation is not going to improve uh, overnight. It probably won't improve in the short term either. Um, in addition, speaking more broadly, the, the Trump administration has indicated that uh, 
immigration is a priority in all senses. So there is the crackdown on the border that made people uh, run out to to volunteer their time and, and take to the streets in outcry. There's also this crackdown on visa overstays. There's also reports coming out now that they uh, are interested in pushing out army recruits with specialized skills who had been promised an expedited path to citizenship. So really the picture is it doesn't matter necessarily how you're coming to the country. We just don't really want you in the country. Uh, so I think that is really the message that the Trump administration is sending and getting across in all avenues. And unfortunately, in a harsh situation, it's really harshest for the most vulnerable. And in many cases, those are the asylum seekers who are fleeing violence. I think this current crisis, too, is encouraging people to take a harder look at our immigration system and understanding, too, how deportation is another form of family separation. And so unaccompanied kids who don't have a right to legal counsel in immigration court, when they are ordered deported, that is a form of family separation if their parents are here. When we represent um, parents in immigration proceedings whose children are U.S. citizens uh, or who are not in deportation proceedings and they are ordered removed, that is a form of family separation. When uh, this administration announces the ending of temporary protected status for thousands of people. Over 200,000 U.S. citizen kids are at risk of losing a parent uh, to deportation. That's another form of family separation. So I think this crisis is shining a light on the many ways in which immigrants are really suffering, suffering and are at risk right now. Um, so it's a difficult environment, but what has been very inspiring for us is to see the support of pro bono attorneys and the greater community to support families in this situation, to support um, immigrants generally. And so I hope we use this as an opportunity for long-term engagement on issues that really are critical to immigrants, to U.S. citizen children, and to all of our communities. Well, thank you both for spending some time and talking about these issues with us, and I hope that you'll come back and we'll do a check-in maybe in another month or two and see where things stand. So thank you. Thank you. This conversation was recorded on July 9th. Please note that the same day, Judge Dolly G of the Central District of California denied the Attorney General's request to modify the Flores Agreement, finding the motion wholly without merit and procedurally improper. Therefore, the terms of the Flores Settlement Agreement remain in place. To read about the City Bar's positions on immigration and other policy issues, visit our website at nycbar.org. And find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on iTunes or Google Play or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Cardaris.